Good afternoon. Welcome to this week's edition of Navarra FM here on Resonance 104.4 FM. I'm Aaron Bastani, at Aaron Bastani on Twitter. And this week I'm joined by editor-in-chief, editor-in-chief of Navarra Wyatt, Craig McVegas. Hi, Craig. Hello. What's your, what's your uh, Twitter handle, Craig? At Craig McVegas. At Craig McVegas, right. Are you sure you're following me? Um, I mean, pro- probably. I mean, I've lost most of my, my sort of mental faculties... So I wouldn't be able to verify that, but I think so, yeah. I don't think that's not for the right reasons. reasons. Not for the right reasons. <laughs> no, I was good. Well, before I introduce you, Adam, I was going to say to listeners, you may be aware of the last time I pulled an all-nighter and then did a show was with James um, after the Thatcher is Dead LOL party in Brixton two years ago. Um, and then we did a sort of a show on her legacy, her political legacy, and we hadn't slept then either. Um, I was infinitely more inebriated than I am now so hopefully this won't be such a disaster but yeah thanks for at least thanks thanks for helping a brother out by at least telling the audience you give, you give me excuses rather than me having to do it myself that's good <laughs> I do my best yeah so al- along with Craig as, as is already probably quite obvious is uh, Adam Ramsey the uh, contributing editor to our kingdom the UK element of the open democracy operation hello Adam hello thanks for having me a- Adam Ramsey I've had a whole hour of sleep so I'm feeling notably perky <laughs> oh, be quiet. Uh, given there was a general election yesterday, we've decided to do a show on it, discussing what seems to be an extraordinary set of results for the Conservatives, Labour, and perhaps most of all for the Scottish National Party. Um, the Tories somehow seem to have won a majority, not in any meaningful sense of the word, but still more than anyone, including their own leadership, could have imagined. It seems now that they've won 329 seats... The counts are still ongoing, but it seems that they've won 329 seats. That's three more, four more necessary to uh, have a majority in Parliament. By contrast, Labour looks set to get 234. That's more than 20 seats less than 2010, a moment which most had thought to be a nadir for the party, at least until last night. Uh, that's their worst performance since 1987, when they got 229 seats. But however bad the Labour performance was, yesterday and it was abysmal it was not as bad as what's happened to the Liberal Democrats who've gone from 56 seats to around 10 losing many of their most prominent politicians in the process that's a loss of around 80% of their seats and when you think about it in terms of a visual metaphor it means that you could now fit the entirety of the Liberal Democrat Parliamentary Party into London black cabs Meanwhile, the outstanding success story of the night was the SNP, who went from five to 56 seats in the process, nearly wiping Labour off the electoral map north of the border. Adam, I'm going to start with you. What's happened and how has it happened? Um, well, I mean, there's a few things. I mean, the first thing to say is uh, I-, I was in this studio a couple of weeks ago making predictions and I was very wrong. Um, and lots of others uh, were too, but, um, you know, sorry. Um, and I, I mean, I think that the, the first thing that's worth noting is, although you're right about the individual party numbers, I, I've always said that in this election, the important way to look at it is in the collections on the left and right of parties. What we've actually seen is a reduction in the number of MPs from right-wing parties, if you count the Lib Dems as a right-wing party, and an increase in the number of MPs from left-wing parties, just that the right-wing vote has consolidated into the Tories and the left-wing seats have fractured between the SNP and Labour in particular and, you know, and, I mean, the S- you know, Greens and SCLP and Plaid uh, Cymru all said the same. Um, and so that makes, that's what gives that devastating look when you look at 
the election results in terms of individual parties. But we have overall is essentially a very, very tightly balanced parliament. You know, um, we are a few by-elections, you know, a few harsh tacks away from the Tories and um, from, the, from the Tories mm. having to rely either on the collapsed Lib Dems, who won't be keen on it, or on the DUP, who, you know, it's worth remembering, is a party led by an ex-paramilitary who spent a lot of last year stoking up literal violence against Naomi Long, whose seat they just took from Alliance in Belfast East. So, so you know, this is not, you know, it's it's a, obviously a very good night for the Tories. They've got a majority, you know, I've been saying for the last six months that there's no way they're going to get a majority and that, you know, it's a disaster for nobody them long term. saying these guys will get a majority. Yeah, right? I mean, that's certainly extraordinary. Absolutely, nobody and, was saying this. You know, and um, it's not a majority in any meaningful sense of the word, like you say, but it's a majority. Yeah, and, you know, you, you which know is, it's, it's still, you know, not what anyone expected. But, but you know, looking at the two grouping, you know, because the SNP have taken all those Labour seats, but, you know, had 10 seats gone the other way, um, you know, Labour... Tory seats, which, you know, it was within the margin of error of any poll, mm. then we'd have been looking at a very complex mess where, you know, Cameron couldn't get a Queen's speech through, but, um, you know, Miliband would have been seen as illegitimate because he had many more, many mm. fewer seats. And so, you know, they didn't quite happen. My point is that it's easy to look at this and think that, you know, the, the Tories have hammered home, you know, won by a long way. Mm. And I think that's a misreading to an extent because the SNP surge has kind of hidden the fact that Labour actually, you know, did advance slightly in England. Labour's vote share is up across the UK on 2010 a bit, you know, not as much as they'd have hoped, not as much as the polls said they would be, but mm. certainly a bit. Craig? Uh, I mean, I think that's broadly correct. You, you know, you wouldn't really know it from... Um, a lot of the rhetoric coming from people like, well, I'm thinking of Boris Johnson and George Osborne in particular. But, you know, this this hasn't been a sort of, uh, you know, triumphant victory. It's actually a very sort of thin mandate, particularly when we look at Scotland, which obviously we'll talk about. And also when we look at, um, when we look at Wales as well. Um, I think that... You know, okay. So Scotland is a really, the really big thing, um, but we've also, you know, the, the other sort of big thing has been that, uh, you know, we've seen the sort of near obliteration of the Liberal Democrats, and it's been a bit of a free for all, you know, with their seats. You know, we've we've um, last time I looked, which admittedly was about. I don't know, seven fifteen this morning. It was eight. It was eight fifteen, and that was the that's when the live blog, which is so marvelously curated, <laughs> I think, posted its final. The live uh, blog. Oh well, uh, if, if you haven't seen the live post. blog, it's it's all it's all there online. It's on all there. We've got a whole archive of what was possibly one of the worst evenings in the history of the Labour Party. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. At yeah. wired.navaramedia.com. That's right, yeah. Yep. So, yeah, we've got that if, if people are interested. Uh, we'll probably carve it into stone later on in the day. Maybe we'll just use the back of Labour's tablet, <laughs> which I think, I don't know. It's a great idea. Yeah, it is a good idea. What do you think? I would like to have um, a 3D printed one, but, you know. Okay, all right. Sometimes all right. they're always the best. Uh, I mean, the, the, the Lib Dem seats have basically been, uh, you know, a load of them have, have gone gone Labour, such as in Bristol West, and then we've also seen, uh, you know, the Conservatives take a load of those. So maybe something we'll discuss a bit later on is quite how the Conservatives seem to have sort of gained out of the coalition situation, and the Liberal Democrats mm. have taken the fall so mm. badly. Because I don't think that the coalition has been that popular as a setup, mm. um, and it's very striking that you know the. Uh, the praise uh, seems to be going to one side and the fall has been taken by another. Mm. Adam? Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. Um, 
It was interesting for me that, you know, before the Scottish election in 2011, the Lib Dems repeatedly said, you know, yeah, the polls say we're going to get five MSPs, but don't believe the polls. You know, Lib Dems are popular local MSPs. We're going to hang on many more seats than people predict and so on. And they didn't. They got five MSPs as predicted. And, you know, the polls have indicated slightly more than what the Lib Dems ended up with, but we've had, in a sense, the same phenomenon. You know, but, And again, a lot of people believe the Lib Dem rhetoric. They're going to hang on to all these, you know, seats that because they've got popular local MPs, well... I, I never particularly understood why we would, although, you know, I, the polls said 25, and I thought that might be right. So, you know, it's, it's gone even worse. I mean, I suppose the other thing is um, that the Lib Dems tried to do that thing. You know, they, they're the only party that kind of looked both ways. So, you know, other smaller parties were pretty clear who they were going to talk to. And if you voted SNP, mm. you understood that they were going to talk to Labour. Mm. If you voted, you know, for UKIP, you understood they were going to talk to the Tories. I think, you know, in an, in an election which is polarised, you know, the politics, you know, remember this is, you know... For all, I don't think Labour was clearly left enough. Um, right-wing people thought it was far too left. You know, they kind of managed to get the worst of both worlds, where they managed to convince the right they were the crazy socialists without ever exciting the left. Mm. Um, and so, you know, if, if you were a, you know, if you, so the point is the election polarised, Lib Dems kind of fell down the gap in the middle, didn't they? You know, they kind of, you know, why would you, if you're a, if you want the Tories to be prime, if you're to be prime minister, why would you vote? Lib Dem, you're terrified of crazy socialist Ed Miliband. If you hate the Tories, then why would you vote for Lib Dems? You might prop up the Tories. So, you know, I think they kind of slit down that crack. Um, I think, you know, the Lib Dems, it's worth remembering, have historically done well because they were the masters of ground campaigns. Mm. And they, you know, a lot of that is, you know, this is a, a point I made a couple of days ago, but in order to be good at a ground campaign, you've got to have people who are physically fit enough to deliver a hell of a lot of leaflets, done a hell of a lot of driveways. Mm. And that means usually young people. And they lost a lot of their young membership. And that makes it a lot harder to, you know, the famous Lib Dem leaflets where you get, you know, 25 leaflets in an election campaign. How do you do that unless you can basically spend a whole campaign jogging around your constituency? Mm, these teenage mules that they would uh, kind of enthuse with yeah. promises on fees and mm. grants that were obviously broken in 2010. Okay. But then a response to that is, well, look, the average Conservative Party member, 68 years old, according to the Spectator, anyway, that's not in yeah. some some far left, ultra left publication. Spectator, it's a it's a friendly publication in terms of its relation to the Conservative Party. They're saying the average Conservative Party member is 68 years old, right? Labour is at least 50 percent bigger. Has at least remember it's half half as much again, right? 150,000 to 100,000. It's probably more than that. It's got the unions. It's got younger people. We know that the Labour ground campaign was significantly better. In London, it blew the stories out of the, the water. So how does a party with an average membership of 68 get this kind of result? Well, I mean... Given uh, the importance of ground campaigns, you've already pointed out. You know, it, it was clear throughout this election that what we were seeing was a battle between the ground campaign and, and what people call the air campaign, in other words, the media. And, you know, the Tories had the support, it's worth remembering, of all but two UK-wide newspapers. Um, even even the Independent came out for the coalition in the end. Um, and that was used to brutal effect. I mean, the... You know, the the way that The Sun, um, you know, the most read newspaper in the UK still, uh, I was, I've been reading it every day for the last month. And the way, you know, the, the way that it has a powerful message discipline and it pushes a very specific line and agenda with a huge amount of force. You know, I, I if I'm honest, I suspected throughout the campaign, given the polls weren't moving, that their readers are just so immune to that, that they don't 
believe it. But, you know, I, I guess I was wrong. I mean, you know, the, the Tories, without, you know, they don't deliver anything like as many leaflets or have as many canvases, you know, and, and anyone living in a marginal seat, you know, mostly will, will attest to that, I think, you know, compared to their rivals on the whole, because they can't, because as you say, the membership's younger. But they do have much more control over the media, and it seemed that that's what went out in this election. But they had the control over the media, you know, five years ago. And if you look, take, take Ed Balls, right? Ed Balls managed to defend that seat five years ago, and yet he's lost it today. Ed Balls, shadow, um, shadow uh, chancellor. chancellor. I was going to say ch- ch- finance secretary, as if yeah. it was like some European. Or something. But yeah. he's not anything anymore. Well, he's not anything. Well, well, yeah, well, yeah. I'm sure he'll be working at Deloitte or Goldman or you know PwC or somebody or. very quickly, right? But I mean, if you take somebody like that, right? Yeah. That's that. I mean, that to me seems just like an. an a completely bizarre outcome. If you look at all of the the factors, he defended it in in 2010, and yet in the meantime, you know, declining pay, stagnant. Pay. This is another thing we'll talk about later on. But it's not just the the inability, seemingly, of the Conservative Party to wage a ground campaign. How that aligns with quite quite severe economic variables, which the mainstream media isn't talking about, but which people feel, well, which are real things that seems to literally have had no bearing. The biggest decline of real pay on record since the 50s, because that's when records began, since the 60s, but really in the 20th century, the biggest decline on pay has not had an impact on a general election outcome. How is that possible, Adam? Well, so, so I think you know, the other thing to say is that this is about... you know. Gro- Leaflets are useless unless they have a good message on them. Mm. You know, you can put as many bits of paper through someone's letterbox as you like, but unless you've got a thing to say that you repeat and you repeat and you repeat and you repeat until it becomes the defining issue of the election for them, the thing that everyone's talking about, you know, those leaflets, you know, you might as well just put them in the bin. You know, they're not going to do anything to convince anyone. And, you know, the, I think for me, the, the, the most important lesson for the Labour Party here is, you know, they've been telling us for a year that Scotland doesn't have very different political attitudes to the rest of the UK. And they're right about that. You know, all the evidence is that that's basically true. I mean, there's the slight differences, but nothing major. And they've just had, you know, they've just um, been totally destroyed in Scotland. I was going to use a, an impolite metaphor. Mm. Um, they've been totally destroyed in Scotland by a party which rhetorically was running to their left. Whether you think the SNP are to their left or not, their voters believe they're to the left of Labour. Um, and, and, you know, yet Labour... Uh, rather than responding to that by saying, OK, well, maybe the lesson here is we need to learn from how they beat us and be more exciting and be willing to make the case for, you know, sort of centre-left ideas, they've just sort of been ducking and covering and hiding and hoping that hatred of the Tories was enough, and it's not. So, you know, specifically on austerity, I think it's broader than this. Rather than winning the economic argument on austerity, you know, remember most academics, you know, centrists, economists... Are, you think austerity has failed, but rather than Labour ever having that argument going toe-to-toe and having that fight, they just sort of let the Tories win the argument, but then said, oh, we'll be nicer and, you know, we're not quite as nasty as them and our cuts will be nicer than their cuts. And, you know, that doesn't convince anyone. You know, whereas with the SNP, you know, they're not socialists, but they were happy to make a, an economic and ideological case against austerity. And, you know, in Scotland won that economic argument. And so that's why people come to the point is, you know, it's a very long way of saying Labour didn't have a, a good message. You know, in 2010, Gordon Brown went out there and he said, it's Labour investment versus Tory cuts. Yeah. And, he, you know, he repeated that in the debate. So it was the only thing he said in the debates, basically. They repeated that on every leaflet. You know, it was their big thing. This time they retreated from that. Mm. They said nothing at all. And they're suffering. The, 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 you know, they, they've been punished for that. Mm. Craig, weak message and underperforming infrastructure. What else uh, explains Labour's underperformance? Well, I, I think that the... the 
you know the, the weak message is is actually a really key thing you know the, the fact that uh um you know it's all very well you know having all these people to get the message out if if you haven't you know got got a good one i think the thing that's that sort of happened is that labor have um you know try to sort of sow this sort of narrative you know about uh you know we've got a sort of journey for the country and you know the the working people are uh you know going to succeed and britain's going to succeed and we're going to be one nation like you know it just doesn't sort of connect and there's this thing about politicians that you know quite often the, the more they try and seem like normal people the more they sort of you know really fail every time i mean i was just chatting to someone in a in a, a cafe a friend of mine um, you know before we came on air and he was talking about you know ed miliband's management of the two kitchens thing you know and it was just just the way that was that was sort of dealt with uh was an absolute shambles i mean you know it's someone who was maybe the sort of media savvy or what, whatever you know might have said well you know you know this this is the reality of my, my family life and look at the sacrifices i have to make in my own personal time because of the things i believe in and could have you know made something of that i think that um you know the flip side is that the conservatives have been very very good at their messages you know they, they, they you know this is a sort of um uh a lesson in sort of discourse management you know they've had sort of two main things three main things actually it started off with two main things one was um the budget deficit the budget deficit the budget deficit the budget deficit never mind the fact that you know in the last three years george osborne's borrowed more than labor did in 13 years for the national debt but it's always been about the budget deficit and that's the kind of you know i mean this is just just accounting really this is you know this is an economist this is accounting this is oh you know well we've maxed out on, accounting, but I think for the day. absolutely you know we've maxed out on the credit card so you know we need to cut back a little bit and uh you know we're all doing it so you know um and the second message has been that uh, Labour can't be trusted with spending. And, you know, so it's been the budget deficit, Labour can't be trusted to overspend, you know. And they've been driving these two home. And then since uh, the SNP have... Um, actually, I don't think it's been since the SNP have, have you know, had this, a surge in popularity in, in Scotland, because I don't think that's actually sudden. I think that's been happening over, over a few years. But certainly since the SNP has become a very visible issue and it's been an anticipated you know event uh for the rest of britain it's been the budget deficit labor can't be trusted not to overspend and the snp want to break up the union and so it's been these three things and they've just been hammering those home and these are uh you know this this is a sort of you know discourse management people um you know, get the the ideas, and every time I've I've been speaking to people who are undecided, and I do have lots of undecided people in my life because I try not to just have, you know, solely um, political people in my life. But uh, you know, people have been saying one of these three things generally, and when you talk about Labour, you know, people sort of well, you know, I don't really know what they stand for. They had this racist mug, and now there's the thing with the stone and. You know, so I think what you've had is you've had sort of two uh, message campaigns that have gone up against each other, and one has tried to do this own narrative thing, and one has actually just gone for this very analytic approach. You know, it's this and it's this and it's this and that's that, and it's paid off for the Tories. Um, yeah, so I mean, I think there's two more things to say about this. I mean, there's a million more things to say about this, mm. but two more things I'm going to say about this right now. 
Um, the first is there's a kind of a deep irony here because um, the best lesson really about the Labour Party comes from Ralph Miliband, Ed's dad. Um, and one of his arguments was that Labour's never going to be the vehicle to transform British politics for the left because it's been so captured by the British state. And I think that's kind of what we saw here. You know, if you want to know how Labour could have run a successful campaign, you just need to look at the SNP, who, you know, apart from independence, are ideologically based in the same place as Labour. And, you know, what they did was make a, you know, they argued against austerity. You know, we, the IFS produced figures saying they're actually technically in favour of not, but that's not the point. You know, voters believed them to be against austerity. They argued for, you know, a radical constitutional change. You know, saying this political system doesn't work is, is what independence in a sense was about. You know, it's not, you know, the outcome of that, you know, Labour obviously weren't going to call for independence, but they could have been arguing for systemic change. You know, the system, the democratic structures of the country aren't working. But they, it, feel, it feels to me like they were so captured over the last five years by that kind of West, you know, and that's a cliche term, but that Westminster bubble, that they felt unable to make either of those cases. You know, they, you couldn't see them coming out. They, they thought that if they went out and argued against austerity, you know, as I said before, a position which is believed by most economists, mm-hmm. that, that they would have been seen as totally uncredible and, you know, just not plausible as a party. And, you know, they seemed totally unable to argue, despite obvious political, you know, obvious failures to our democratic system over the last 10 years, to argue, you know, they, they had in their manifesto a commitment to a constitutional convention but they didn't ever mention that, you know, and, and you know, obviously in itself that's a wonky thing, but frame it the right way. You know, I was arguing back in December that they should have, uh, there was a majority in the last parliament for votes at 16. Mm. And, you know, if they pushed that through, that would be given an indication they're in favour of sort of changing the way that the system works and so on. And they, they didn't ever try to do that. So, so, so that's the first thing is, you know, they've been, um, you know, captured by Westminster. I mean, this has been true for a century now. This is, you know, Ralph Miliband's analysis, in a sense. You know, and when you see parties to the left, you know, the SNP being the obvious example, in a similar place than politically, but which haven't been, you see how devastating they can be in this political context, where, as you say, wages have fallen and so on. And I've absolutely forgotten my second point, because I've only had another We'll sleep. come back to your second point. Um, I, I, I want to basically repeat uh, what Craig previously pointed out, which... Um, was about Tory key messaging. I saw an interview on the BBC, it was t- Conservative voters, right? Which is fair enough after obviously a decisive, decisive result for the Conservatives. Um, and it was five or six interviews on the BBC with, maybe you saw this, I don't know, yeah, five or six interviews with Conservative voters. The first guy was um, first generation uh, African immigrant, I think maybe. Sounded like he had a West African accent. And he said, I'm voting for the Conservatives, the party of workers. I'm a working person. I work for my family. And it was literally like you're saying about discourse analysis. This was the real... For me, the big shift in the last six months <laughs> in terms of Tory key messaging was with the party of the workers yeah. mm-hmm. um, and working people. And they kept on saying it, kept on saying it, kept on saying it. And, you know, I don't really... I never rated... Look, sometimes you've got to suck it up and say I was wrong. I never rated David Cameron and George Osmond as politicians. They nailed it. You know, that message of the working party... Well, Lindsay Crosby nailed it. Well, but I know, but they had to deliver it, right? Yeah. And, yeah. you know, I, I didn't think... I said I didn't think George Osborne would be good enough to... This guy's a baronet. I didn't think he would be capable of um, sincerely getting that message across for six months, decisively achieving it, winning it, you know, and somehow, for much of the public, successfully framing the Conservative Party as the party of the working person yeah really astonishing um and then the second point kind of addendum to that is this idea that the economy is on the mend so people say i'm a working person they're the party of the working person and the economy is on the mend we've got to finish what we began and again you know look not that 
Budget deficits are as important as the Conservative Party say they are, but budget deficit in this country remains well in excess of £90 billion. It was meant to have been eliminated by now. The trade deficit is still, you know, huge, you know. Uh, Productivity's been stagnant since 2008. I was saying at an NLB event I spoke at, I think, yeah, 10 days ago, I said, if you're an economist, Deutsche Bank economist, or you're a treasury economist, stagnant productivity is a bigger problem than unemployment, right? And yet, I at no point heard in the election campaign, now clearly, it's a, again, it's a wonky thing, productivity, but, you know, you could frame that, you know, say, we're not a high-tech economy, actually. We're not competitive because we've got stagnant productivity. I never heard that come out of Ed Miliband's mouth. Um, and somehow, somehow the Conservatives have, have successfully thrown themselves as A, the party of the working person, B, um, making big inroads into the deficit, big inroads into the structural inherent failings of the British economy, decades old, but they haven't, right? But these are two things they've achieved with maximum effect, it seems. Craig, you seem perturbed. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, you know, this... Um Oh, we're going to you know roll up our sleeves and uh, you know get stuck in, and we're going to finish the job that we set out to do. Mm. Th- this is you know this is sort of you know the the Tories bringing their A game at the moment, right? I mean, George Osborne um, just earlier has been like tweeting, you know, well, you know, I'm going to get back to work tomorrow, and I'm just going to crack on with the recovery and you know the rest of it. And this, are you really- think this is, this is Crosby? Because this is really new. Yeah. I th- I you think so. so? You think he's I literally mean, schooling them and saying these exact phrases? Because this is quite new, Craig. No. Well, it is, it is new. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think there's definitely been a, a conscious, a conscious shift. You know, because you've got a lot of things going on. In a lot of ways, it's kind of interesting <laughs> the way that uh, parties are trying to gear themselves towards. Uh, well, the working class, right? I mean, you know, it's not, never framed in those terms. Labour would never go near that. The word class, right? Mm. But. Um, we're seeing this sort of like there's a real clash, right? So the Conservatives have you know run this campaign about um, you know we're going to uh, keep on making the tough decisions and getting the job done, and you know you're working hard, so we're working hard, and you know we're recovering at last, and the rest of it, and you just say it and say it and say it. And the thing is, is that then you've got Ed Miliband. And he's not saying those things. He's not saying, oh, I want to get like stuck into the economy and it's not going right. It's going wrong. And I'm going to fix it. What he's doing instead is he's saying, I don't want to be in a country where we do this. Mm, it's very moralizing I want language, to be yeah. in a country yeah. where we do that. I want to be in, you know, like a one nation. Like, I mean, you know, I literally don't even know what that means. Like, you know, yeah. a one nation Britain or one nation Labour, right? And so... What he's doing is he's not saying, you know, I'm going to get stuck in and I'm going to, you know, fix the things that are wrong and highlighting, making visible the things that are actually going wrong. They're going terribly wrong. I mean, you know, we're we're all like extra parliamentary actors and, you know, we're like, you know, we we know where the sort of the real struggles are happening. Right. I mean, even just in the city, like all over the place. But Labour haven't haven't done that. And what they've tried to do instead is they try to say, oh, we want to do something new. So look at the um, uh, interviews with Ed Miliband fairly early on in the campaign where they're all saying, yeah, but what about your brother? You know, how, how was that? You know, you know, was he, you know, did you force him out or whatever? You know, this whole like obsession with Ed Miliband, you know, doing over David Miliband. And he's always said, look, I think I'm the best person to move... Uh, 
labor away from new labor yeah and you know start something new but the thing is that's a conceit he doesn't actually want to move away from new labor because what he wants is he wants labor's new labor's historic voters which are predominantly in the south and south not in london but you know he wants wants new labor's voters while trying to reach out to the the uh disaffected uh sort of historically core voters um, in the north, um, which of course have, you know, is the same target of, of UKIP at the moment. So they found themselves in this difficult situation. And what it's ended up as is they've got these six key pledges for this new project they want to do. And then meanwhile, you've got the Conservatives saying, no, we don't, we don't want to do a new project. We want to finish the job we started. Mm. You know, we don't want these sort of flights of fancy and being reckless and the mm. rest of it. And they're hitting that home and saying, well, you know... Labour want to do these new things, they can't be trusted to, not to overspend, you know? So you've got this real clash. Just speaking about the kind of the, the language that was being used by Osborne and Cameron, um, he was interviewed, Osborne was interviewed um, yesterday on the BBC, I think as it became clear that, I think it was actually after, immediately after the exit poll, around 10pm, 10, 10 shortly after 10pm. Well, no, it was a bit later actually. And then they said, uh, are you happy, you know, people said that David Cameron wasn't a winner including much of his own party, much of his own backbench. This guy didn't win a majority in 2010, despite all the variables being in his favour. A relatively poor incumbent, disliked Prime Minister, a sitting government of 13 years, a financial crisis, historically unprecedented in many ways, only two years earlier, and yet he couldn't win a majority. This guy, by many people, was seen as a bum, a loser. And yet tonight, he's defied them, which, you know, again, hats off, he kind of did, right? Um, and George Osborne said, I, I, it pains me to say because I really never took these people as serious politicians, but, you know, deadpan face, he goes, well, first thing I want to say is it's good to see your, your neighbour come home after a good night's work and a job well done. And he was talking as if this guy was coming back from a factory in his, you know, in his uh, overalls, and he saw him, you know, through the window making himself a cup of tea before going to bed or something, you know. Yeah. And this is, again, you know, we're talking about um, a young man that went to St Paul's, talking about a young man that went to Eton, both went to Oxford. They are the, the absolute um, quintessence of noblesse oblige in Britain, of the aristocratic ruling classes of this country. Uh, and yet he, you know, quite convincingly came across as, you know... This could be Jeff in Rotherham or, you know, yeah. Ben in Surrey. You know, and I, they weren't doing that five years ago. And somehow they've done it. And if that's, if that's Linton Crosby, the Lizard of Oz, then maybe he's worth the money. Adam? I think that's right. I mean, I think just to contrast it with Labour, um, as we've been doing, I mean, I think there's, there's a few things to remember here. So one of those is that Miliband couldn't really say anything over the last five years because his big project, his big aim was to stop any splits in the Labour Party. You know, Labour... He's gone through five years without any major splits. You know, there was a few a, a bit of criticism of leadership before Christmas, but you know, nothing major. And that's, I think, the first time Labour's gone into opposition and not basically all fallen out with each other. Mm. But the way he managed to do that was by not saying anything. Mm. And um, and so that's you know, that's a real problem for the party. Is you know, you need a leader who can make some kind of argument. And that comes back to you know, to the point Craig was making before. Which I think is also vital here, which is that. The left can, can't win just by saying that we're going to be nicer to people. You've got to win by winning the economic argument. And, you know, what's sort of ironic in a sense is that that's a deeply Marxist point to make, you know, that, that in a sense the, the economy is absolutely vital. It's not just about being nice, you know, that you win by, you know, not just winning the economic argument. But the, the right has managed to frame the economy 
in such a way as to mean basically corporate profits mm. so that they can always win the argument about them being better for the economy. Mm. And, you know, that is disastrous. And rather than confronting that, they've just run away from it because, in a sense, there's you know, deep and what you might call ideological disagreements about that economic argument. So as soon as you say anything about that, you risk splitting the Labour Party because they don't all agree about it. And so, you know, until Labour can resolve that conflict, it has any sense of what its economic plan is, mm. which it seems not to, as far as I can tell. You know, Miliband, you know, they can put some nice things in the manifesto. There are lots of good stuff there, if you, you know, if you look mm. at the detail. But, but they can't make it their message because they can't, you know, the most you can say, you know... The best line Miliband had, I think, is I think that Britain succeeds when working people succeed, by which he means you know, the wealth creators of our country, and you talk about this sometimes, wealth creators of our country are the working class, not capitalists, which is a, you know, it's to the left of what Brown used to say. You know, Brown would never make that case, you know, that wealth is created by working class people, not not the bourgeoisie, which is in effect what Miliband was saying. But he, but that's the closest he came to making any kind of economic argument, seriously. And that's because he's held back by his party. You know, I think actually Miliband, yeah, I've always felt he was the right choice of leader given the options available to them. Mm. Um, and, you know, yet, you know, the left in Labour, they've had their candidate and he wasn't able to win. Now, it'd be idiotic to look at, as I said before, at the SNP and think that means that the solution is to run to the right. But that looks like what they're likely to do. And, you know, because, because the centre of gravity within Labour is to the right of their villa band. Mm, mm. I that's what, when, I, when I saw Russell Brand's endorsement of Ed Miliband, I mean, you know, I've, um, I, I've never been obviously impressed by his political analysis. I mean, the guy's a comedian in, in, in more than one sense. But, um, you know, when he was talking about Miliband, you think, look, and he's saying, you know, vote Labour. And I'm thinking, this, I've said this so many times on the show, this guy has no faction, no bedrock in his own party. Yeah. You can It's. A, it's. I mean. It's. A, it's. A, it's almost a miracle. The guy, like you say, stayed there without a coup. I think yeah. that actually tells you a lot about the weakness of the Labour front bench. To be quite honest, it's a miracle because he's got no people. What Chuck Umana, Sadiq, Sadiq Khan, Sadiq Khan's his general. I mean, this is just. It's nonsense, right? And that tells you this guy. I mean, you look. You know, people go. Oh, it doesn't matter. Charisma doesn't matter. How he looks doesn't matter. You know, his retinue within the party doesn't matter. It matters. Of course, that all matters. You can maybe take one thing away, but you can't not have any of this stuff. Look at Blair, ninety-seven, the second biggest ever um, swing uh, from the Conservative Party to Labour. The first one, maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, was to Attlee from Churchill, forty-five. I think it was twelve, so, yeah. 12 point swing. Blair's a 10-point swing. When you compare that to the results in Scotland last night, I mean, nothing, right? You're getting like sort of nearly 30-point swings in a lot of places, right? Yeah, but I mean, those are the records in all of British history. So, yeah, you know, I mean, we have the whole, the top 20, you know, the records now, yeah. the biggest constituency swings in general. Really astonishing. Yeah. Um, but, you know, now in retrospect, you look at that kind of, those kinds of quite obvious facts, and he was never, he was never going to be a Prime Minister. Um, Americanisms. This is another thing I noticed. When Murphy, Jim Murphy, didn't, not only didn't win, but when he lost his job, um, when he was not re-elected as an MP, and obviously he's, I don't know, is he still technically le- the leader of the Scottish Labour Party? He is, and he said he's not standing down. He's not standing down? I mean, he might be pushed out, but for the moment he's not standing down, and I imagine that no one else in the Scottish Labour Party wants the job, so he might stay That's there. interesting. He says he's going to run in Holyrood elections, he's going to stay as party leader. Okay. So, I mean, you know, he was talking in these very American terms, and Ed Miliband's done that as well. And, he, you know, they're saying, I think Ed Miliband tweeted it a few hours ago, he's saying, there's so much more than you, that unites us than divides us. You know, this is, again, straight out of the Obama playbook 08. And you go, look, we don't have a congressional system. We don't have, you know, a strict separation of powers. You know, 
You can have elective dictatorship in this country. You can actually get mandates and put through really radical or reactionary programs. Right? It's not like that. Why are you talking like you're Barack Obama? It's not the United States. Um, and another thing, you know, uh, building on that, was Jim Murphy and his kind of his speech. We were speaking about this briefly, Adam, before we came on air. You know, Jim Murphy, um, he gave what I thought was a very elegant, courteous speech, which is at odds absolutely odds with 20 years of his political career the guy is not only a nasty piece of work he's been a political liability for Labour in Scotland and, you know yeah. and people go wow wow what a gent what you know wow what grace in defeat the guy <laughs> and Labour Party members are saying this they go look this is why you guys are losing he's a bum he's cost you look you were good, you, you were at, you were down and out in Scotland after September but this guy has cost you five six seven eight seats yeah yeah this guy was a liability oh so gracious and defeat and it's a bit like this whole Miliband thing I, I don't get it you know where, where's their it's kind of it's kind of I don't know these they watch too much West Wing you know I used to have a, a guy a mate in the Labour Party who said his favorite US president which is I Bartlett you know that, that's the yeah. kind that's the kind of nonsense these people are going where's their will to win and it you know this guy was a liability call a spade a spade anyway Adam well yeah I mean so I mean, stop Jim, me from ranting well no I mean <laughs> Jim Murphy I think is an ab- is an absolutely fascinating example kind of what I was saying before about you know, the Ralph Miliband point about Labour being so caught up in Westminster politics mm. that it can't reinvent itself, it can't really represent the need for radical change of the country. You know, Jim Murphy um, was a hugely controversial figure during the referendum. You know, mm. Labour clearly, what they needed to do was win over the large swathe of their electorate. who Because what Labour lost was two things. It was people who did vote yes, you know, it was maybe 40% of their 2010 voters, 45% maybe, mm. voted yes in the referendum. But it's not just that, it's also all of the people who wanted to vote yes in some way, but felt bullied into voting no. Bullied by Labour. Mm. And specifically bullied by people like Jim Murphy. Mm. And so Jim Murphy was exactly the last person to do that. And also, you know, there was this sense created by what basically journalists at Westminster that this guy is in some sense a big beast. You know, he's clearly a charismatic man in a sense. You know, he, he can shout. He's, he's full of himself. He's full right? of himself. Okay, you know. that's a bad... But, 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 <laughs> but, 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 but the thing is that what those, you know, what those Westminster journalists who built this sense that he was the obvious next leader around him, had totally misunderstood, is that the centre of gravity in Scottish, Scottish politics for a long time has been around Hollywood, not Westminster. So my mum, you know, living in rural Perthshire, you know, there were three candidates for leader. Mm. She'd only heard of one of them, who was Sarah Bayak. Now, Sarah Bayak is a lovely woman, but she was never going to be the right candidate for leader of the Scottish Labour Party. But the point is, you know, that Jim Murphy was well-known at Westminster. <laughs> but, you know, my mum had only heard of Murphy because he'd been egged. That was the one time she'd ever heard his name before when he became leader. So that was, you know, that was, the, that was one thing. And the second thing is that Poly- Scotland is a small country. It's got five million people in it. And so anyone involved in politics in an active sense in Scotland kind of knows who everyone else is. And so if you've been going around behaving quite badly for 20 years. You know, you've got a history in student politics of stabbing people in the back and so on. It's not like the UK where you can kind of disappear and reappear somewhere else. People know that. So, mm. you know, Jim Murphy has been, you know, among the kind of people who knew, you know, how many people have a friend of a friend of a friend who was stabbed in the back by Jim Murphy once? Well, almost everyone involved in politics in Scotland. And, you know, between, almost everyone in Scotland knows someone who's involved in politics and that's their mate who they ask, oh, what do you think of that guy? Mm. So, you know, word gets out very fast. If you behave the way he's said to have behaved, you know, I, I say this, it's not like I've seen this happen, it's just what you, the rumours you hear. Mm. You know, the, so, so, so yeah, I say, he, he's a liability, but he was, the point is that Scottish Labour seemed to select him, partly because 
Scottish Labour is more to the right than Labour across the UK, and he was the right-wing candidate. But also because the kind of Westminster bubble told them to. You know, they're so entrapped by the sort of headlights of Westminster that they think that, you know, the big beast in Westminster, the important man from the real parliament, was obviously the right choice, rather than getting, you know, someone else from Hollywood. He might not, you know, be used to the shitiness of question time and have learned that kind of politics. But, you know, one of the things I was thinking last night is I wonder how many now ex-Scottish Labour MPs kind of wish that they'd kept Joanne Lamont on. You know, she, she sure, she's a bit bumbling, but she was never hated. She was never, ever despised in the way that Jim Murphy was utterly, utterly loathed. Mm. Craig? Jim Murphy, yeah. Americanisms... You know, the fact that Labour activists and members, they don't seem to want to win, they don't seem to want to apportion blame. What do you think? I mean, I'm I'm not sure what to add, really. I mean, I I think that, um, you know, in some sense, uh, what Labour have been trying to do is really, like, shed, shed the sort of new Labour image. You know that that's the thing. They've been trying to do that um, without, uh, uh, with basically without without shedding their sort of new Labour voters. But they've ended up really like you know appeasing no one. So I've seen a lot of people, for example, saying say, look at you know uh, the SNP, look at the Greens. Uh, you know, so the Greens obviously um, retained uh, Brighton um, with an increased majority. 8,000, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, which, uh, you know, maybe a year ago looked very, very iffy indeed. I mean, you know, that, that was a marginal right. seat, right? Um, and so a lot of people on the left now are saying, well, you know, this is, you know, if you have an anti-austerity... Uh, message, and you have this sort of like a left-wing populist thing, then like Labour could have won all those seats, and I just, like I mean, it just that doesn't click for me either. You know, like I think there's something a bit more sort of deep-rooted. There's something really wrong with the Labour Party at the moment. It's really trying to fight on all different fronts. I mean, something that maybe you know we've got less than twenty minutes left. Maybe, maybe we'll talk about like the North and the Northeast, mm. and the fact that UKIP now. Uh, have, have come a firm second in what 90, 100 let me get this out I think it's look, yeah, it looks like, like they've got 3.7 million votes yeah. uh, they've only got one MP yeah. and I think they've got 117 second places let me have a look yeah. I'll verify that but you want to yeah exactly you know so th- th- they've they've really been trying to sort of like firefight on all fronts and they've ended up sort of pleasing nobody really yeah. um, and I think a lot of people um, Paul Mason wrote this this article last night and was saying you know have we seen the biggest sort of mass tactical vote in 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 uh, British parliamentary history? And there's probably a case we made for that. You know, a lot of people who perhaps would have, um, you know, voted, uh, you know, Labour or UKIP, you know, from either side, from sort of the left of the Tories or, or the right of the Tories, you know, might have thrown a lot in with the Tories because of the SNP issue. And then... Um, you know, uh, a lot of people who would otherwise have voted for, um, you know, perhaps the Greens or something have sort of thrown a lot behind Labour. And so it's been this real sort of, like, carve-up. It's been very hard to call, and I think that, that is sort of why, you know, none of the polls really sort of, you know, hit it. And that's why, actually, you know, very few people predicted the result that we've seen today. Um, but I think that, you know, now what's going to happen, as soon as we were talking about Labour, you know, 
what's going to have to happen is that they're going to have to go away. They've they've lost so like you know Ed Miliband will step down right. They've lost Ed Balls. They've lost um, what's his face the Doug Alexander um, Jim Murphy. Doug, Doug Alexander. You know so they've like lost like you know they're, they're sort of like the very core of of their shadow cabinet. So what's going to have to happen is that they're going to have to go away, have a, some sort of you know. Massive rethink. I mean, I'd love to be on the fly on the wall in that meeting. But they're also going to not just have to think about who the people are. I suspect they'll be from the sort of 2010 generation. But they're also going to have to think about the way that they're trying to position themselves and what they're trying to do politically. Because at the moment, they're in that position where they're trying to sort of be everything to everyone. A little Mm. bit like, you know, the Lib Dems perhaps have done historically. And they're sort of, you know, at risk... Particularly because they've they've now you know very seriously got, for example, UKIP hot on, on their heels in the north. Mm. You know they're they're at risk of um, you know really sort of like losing themselves, right? Mm. Let's talk about UKIP because first results as ever were released in the northeast, Sunderland first two, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and UKIP came second in both, I believe, strong seconds, uh, but in Labour, you know, quote unquote, safe seats. Uh, and we saw this a lot in by-elections, that in a lot of these Labour-safe seats, UKIP were doing surprisingly well. 117 second place, so I just checked, it was 117 second places. 3.7 million votes. One MP. One MP with 3.7 million votes. Really unbelievable, really. Um, that's a great launch pad for five years' time. Um, if they can get the money in, if these donors keep on coming, if these hedge funds keep on coming, if these high-net-value individuals keep on coming... If the Express maintains its support, if that can begin to percolate into other right-wing papers, um, I think they've got a great launch pad now ahead of 2020. Probably would be assisted quite significantly if they have a change of leader in the meantime. I think we've spoken about you know, previously Doug Carswell being a, a strong leader. I think they'd really benefit from not looking like a one-man band nationally. I think if they had a woman, that would be even better, but they don't seem to have the personnel Right, they have two or also, three. just to be clear about what's happened in the last couple of hours, Farage has stood down we should... at least until September. Yeah. Um, he says he might re-stand in, the, uh, in an election then, but he stood down then. In the meantime, he's saying that Suzanne Evans, but the deputy should take over. So they're going to have a female interim leader, yeah. whatever happens, and then yeah, he yeah, might yeah. stand again after that, or it mm. might be someone else. Yeah, I mean, OK, just to clarify for listeners, OK, so Ed Miliband's... Um, no longer the leader of the Labour Party. Neither Nick Clegg is not leader of the Liberal Democrats. No, no, no. So obviously this is all um, changing by the minute. Um, of course, it's worth remembering that I, I do think that the Conservatives didn't expect David Cameron to still be leader at no. this point. Right? Yeah, I mean, we, the I mean, papers are all bigging up Boris Johnson all the last month. You know, yeah, you're right. You know, over, but Boris know. Johnson standing, I mean, you know, surely that was in preparation for a, you know, a new front bench mm. with a new leader. UKIP. So we've got the referendum, EU referendum next year. Yeah. How important is that? 2017, year and a half. Sorry, yeah, my, yeah sorry, I'm on. 2017, year and a half. Um, how important is that going to be in the further scaling potentially of UKIP? Because council local elections have done extraordinarily well. European elections have done extraordinarily well. Not so much today. So can it help bridge that? Well, so my, I mean, my, I've seen this, Aaron, before, but I think if UKIP plays its cards right, or even vaguely right, then European referendum could be to them what the Scottish referendum was to the SNP. I mean, I you know, Europe goes from being, you know, let's be honest, a fringe concern. People mostly vote about you, vote for UKIP because of immigration, not because of Europe. You know, suddenly putting that centre stage in British politics for the next 
two years in a way you know it's only really you know, even when it was mastery treaty I mean I don't, I'm not old enough to remember my impression is it was kind of more a thing for wonks you know but suddenly making it an issue that everyone will talk about because that's what happens with referendums is a gives a significant chance to really you know give UKIP a platform on which to really dominate British politics you know when they've got all those second places you know going into 2020 mm. I wouldn't write them off I mean you know they Right-wing parties, to an extent, have a habit of falling out because they're full of nasty people um, who don't get on with each other. But, you know, that and that might happen. But they've got, you know, so many, you know, whereas they came into this election with, you know, two defections and not, you know, very few, you know, looking at a year ago when I looked at the electoral map, I was like, where are UKIP MPs going to be? You know, all their best results are in seats where the Tories are sitting on 65% of the vote. Mm. You know, you might, might come to second with 20, but whatever. Whereas this time, they're going to be going to the next election with, you know, so many potential routes to MPs that you'd imagine they're going to hit home in a few of them. By-elections as well, right? I think they're probably... Yeah. They're going to have the ground game in by-elections from now in 2020 to actually not, yeah. you know, be well, nearly, nearly theirs. They're going to nail it. And, 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 you know, as people become familiar with multi-party politics, mm. you know, Tory voters will understand they can vote UKIP without unseating the Prime Minister in a parliament this time because UKIP will not vote to sack Cameron, presumably, because, they, you know, because they won't be replaced, what they're going to place him with, what, not late mm. Labour. So, so I think that's right. I think there might have been by-elections, you know. But I think that when we're thinking about... You know, the, the lesson from Scotland, and, you know, this doesn't always happen through referendums, but referendums in this sort of febrile political environment where there's a kind of a lot of complicated energy and direction, you know, when there's a direction for that energy and a referendum can give that, mm. that can really change the political landscape. And I think that, you know, this could be, you know, we think you've seen the rise of UKIP, you know, and there's a way to look at the election last night and say, well, you know, UKIP's only got one MP, which isn't as many as anyone predicted. You know, they've they've almost disappeared. I saw someone tweeting today. You know, you remember that? You remember UKIP? Lol, they were hilarious. No, that's no, so I think, misguided. I think it's totally misguided. Um, you know, get you know, getting one MP is very hard. You know, took, took the Greens a very long time. It's very difficult. You know, UKIP got it through a defection, but they got it. And you know, unlike you know, the, the, the Greens had a very good election, and maybe we can talk about that briefly you yeah. know, at the end. But but you know, UKIP have ended up with you know huge numbers, you know, huge chunks of the map mm. in the next election where they can you know seriously contest, push their pawns around, think about winning in a totally changed context, transformed by that referendum. We've got just over 10 minutes left. You're listening to Navara FM here on Residence 104.4 FM, London's number one radio station. I had the great pleasure of being joined by Adam Ramsey from Our Kingdom Open Democracy and Craig McVegas, editor-in-chief of Navara Wire. We are talking about what else? Uh, last night's election results. Um, before we move on to the Greens, UKIP, uh, how possible is it? Quick answer from both of you, I suppose. How possible is it, that, given that a lot of these second places are in the north and Labour are likely to go right now? There's a lot of Labour safe seats and we're likely to see an, a Labour leadership that's the right of Ed Miliband. How likely is it that this kind of uh, SNP effect is going to filter very slowly? Maybe sort of, you know, intermittently, maybe not across the board, not as wholesale as it is in Scotland, obviously, because it's not a geographically defined area. But how, how much could that begin to kind of percolate south of the border, albeit through an absolutely different political vehicle to the SNP? Craig? Yeah, like, we've got to take that really seriously, OK? So um, I agree, like, I think it's really misguided people saying... Oh yeah, remember UKIP, remember Farage, etc. Blah 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 blah. I think that um, although you know not having Farage as a, as a leader, uh, 
it's a move that they've got to do at some point. I mean, from their perspective, right? You know, they've, they've got to do that to not become a one-man band. But he does have a lot of, uh, you know, sort of, uh, I don't know, you know, political um, capital or charisma or whatever. And a lot of people see Farage and when they think of UKIP. Um, but, you know, what you got to understand about the North, right? So I... I from Barnsley. Well, oh, that's a terrible accent. Much like, um, good accent, much like, you know, Adam doesn't sound like he's from Scotland. I don't sound like um, I'm from Barnsley. That's because I'm an army kid, so I've got a nondescript accent. Um, but uh, so somewhere like Barnsley, for example, so like Barnsley is in South Yorkshire, it's around the corner from um, Ed Miliband's seat in, in Doncaster North, and um, the far right have had a presence you know, in places like Barnsley for a very, very long time. So, like, you know, I remember growing up, every single Saturday the BNP would have a stall in town, very well received, never opposed, ever. And um, so the, the far right has always been there, right? It's always it's, it's, not, it's not a new thing, so you keep coming in. What's new about UKIP is their sort of, like, legitimacy. Like, you've got, you know, papers, like the Daily Express backing UKIP, you know, openly. And... Um, even the Daily Mail, you know, being being uh, quite soft on UKIP, even though he sort of, you know, when he had his little drunken rant yesterday, sort of, you know, suggested that they stitched him up. Um, you can see a, a Vine, Navarra Media Vine for that. Um, He'd been drinking for 12 hours. He had been drinking for 12 hours, yeah. So, uh, basically, we got to understand is that since since the 1980s, the, the Tories in the north, northeast, you know, particularly sort of mining, post-industrial areas, they're absolutely toxic. People won't go near them. And the thing is that people have voted Labour, but this was part of like the Blairite gamble, right? Was to try and branch out to a new set of voters. But you can rely, you can rely on on the north because mm. they're not going to vote for the Tories. It's just not going to happen, and it's true, it's not going to happen. But now they have got an alternative to Labour, and I don't think it really matters what that alternative necessarily is but you know you've got someone like um you know uh you know farage who's sort of like you know charismatic and pint swilling and the rest of it and you know i can connect to like the white working class and these are you know often um you know uh, uh sort of you know um place like Barnsley, I mean, Barnsley is a really white area, for example. It's not a big city. I mean, we're talking about big industrial towns, for example, you know, mm. places like Sunderland. And, um, uh, you know, if if Labour can't get it together and they can't connect to that, that voter base, then they're leaving it wide open for UKIP. And that's a real, real possibility. And so, you know, UKIP have been saying now that uh, this is uh, the 2020 plan. They've been talking about the 2020 plan. The 2020 plan is basically to position themselves well <clears throat> now so that in 2020, you know, with the funding, they can really start, you know, moving the pawns around, as Adam says. Mm. We've talked about UKIP. We've got just over five minutes left. Let's talk quickly about the Greens. UKIP got 117 second places. The Greens only got four. They've both ended up with the same number of MPs. Greens did extraordinarily well in terms of the vote. They got one million votes. Yeah, more than one million. Yeah. So it's gone up. I mean, if, as it happens, Brighton Pavilion took it over the one million line. Oh, that's that's good. Um, and uh, their share of the vote went up from 1% to what, 3.7%, 3.6%? Yep, yep. So in relation to UKIP, that's not as good. But how do you see the night overall for the Green Party's success? Yeah, very much. I mean, um, I, I spent about an hour in the Green press office last night. And, you know, um, we were, you know, when you look at the bets on results from people there, um, you know, that was about what people were expecting. You know, this was 
you know, not it's not like anyone thought they'd get more than that. It's you know, it's more you know, more than a trebling of the vote. That's good. Holding on to Caroline Lucas with an increased majority. I mean, it's important to remember that a lot of activist resource had to be put into Brighton Pavilion to mm. shore up Caroline, partly because of difficulties in the council, which I'm sure listeners might be familiar with. We've discussed them on the show between indeed. ourselves, haven't yeah, we? Yeah, indeed. Um, and you know, if it hadn't been for that, then Caroline would probably have been safe, and those resources would have been in Bristol West, in Norwich South, winning them, and they would have seats. made the difference, right? And, they would, and, the, and in Bristol West, they would have made the difference. You know, so that is that is the cost of those difficulties. Is that Caroline? You know, people went to Brighton rather than going to Norwich South or Bristol West, and so Greens didn't expand. But you know, the difference is that in 2010. The Green Party got one MP and basically nothing else. You know, you know, it got almost, you know, it got fewer deposits than it got in twenty. This vote actually went down on yeah, two thousand five, yeah. didn't it? Yeah, and that was a strategic choice. You know, activists in the party basically abandoned the rest of the country and went to Bristol, went to Brighton. Yeah. And what we saw this time was a, a very kind of different phenomenon. You know, there were obviously lots of seats where basically there was nothing. Um, but if you take Scotland and Wales out, where those left voters tended to go apply to SNP, the vote was a significantly higher percentage than the 3.6. I mean, yeah, I, I've not seen the figures, but I guess sort of, you know, you, obviously they're only, what, 10% of the country between them, so it can't be that much higher. But 5% maybe. Because maybe, maybe that was the opinion polls were saying, right? Yeah, 4 More or 5%. You know, probably just under 5, I guess. Yeah. Um, and, you know, if you look at kind of places where Greens might do well, you know, the, you know, so for example, I think the total number of deposits the Green Party had ever saved were 37. Something like that. Ever. Ever. Yeah. So the first Green Party, Green Party deposit saved ever was 2001. Um, and there were more than 100 deposits saved last night for Greens. You know, there were lots of thirds, lots of close thirds, lots of people guessing kind of around the 10, 12% mark in seats where, you know, where I live in Oxford East, where there's an incumbent Labour MP who's going to stand down next time. Mm. You know, the point is, yeah, this is not a transformation of the British political map. You know, the, the green surge in membership came a bit late for that. It meant that, you know, there wasn't time to suddenly direct resources into lots of new seats and to build up the base and so on. But there is now, unlike in 2010, there's a solid base of a number of places the party can target. You know, remember they took Ryden from third last time. Mm. You know, so that's conceivable. Um, and, you know, I think that with if Labour does touch the right, which I think would be... You know, idiotically and disastrous for them. But, you know, if it does... Which seems most likely, doesn't it? Which seems most likely. Mm -hmm. Then I think that, you know, there's a potential to build in England and there's a need to build in England a significant and serious electoral alternative to Labour, to the left of Labour. Um, Because Labour is, I think, a busted flush basically in this country now. You know, it's Mm -hmm. it's got serious problems. And so, you know, what the Greens have shown is that they are that force... You know, Tusk and Left Unity are clearly not there. Now, that doesn't mean they don't need significant support and to build and to grow. You know, they're not there yet. But, they, you know, they've clearly become that party in a way that no one ever has before. And, you know, this is going to be a big project for the left, I think, over the next five years in this country. Mm. Um, talking about Labour, we've got two minutes left, just under two minutes left. One and a half, sure. and a half minutes left. I mean, quick point then from me um, is that, you know, the kind of recrimination set in early last night and some Labour activist members were saying, look, people should have voted Labour. And they were talking about the ultra-left as opposed to UKIP, where it's actually, that's where they lost most of their votes last mm-hmm. night. It wasn't people voting for Tusk or the Greens, it was people voting for UKIP, that's where they lost a lot of their vote. Um, and my point was, you are never going to see another majority Labour government in this country ever again. It's not going to happen. So if you can't reconcile yourselves to pluralist, multi-party consensus-based, coalition-based politics, you are irrelevant. And yet they were still saying, to stop the Tories, vote Labour. Stop the Tories, vote Labour. Stop the Tories, vote Labour. And if they're still saying that in a month's time, two months' time, three months' time, 
I think you're right. They're a busted flush, right? Yeah. To stop the Tories, you know, if, if Labour are the solution, they have to excite people. And, you know, I mean, people did vote Labour. You know, there's, uh, there's very few Green Labour Tory marginals where the Green vote was bigger than the Gap because people, Greens in those seats did tactically vote for the Labour Party, it looks like. You know, the only example I can think of where the Tories won with a bigger Green vote in the difference is Kemptown, Brighton-Kemptown. And Labour there, if they put the resource they put to beat Caroline Lucas into that seat, they'd have won. And that, you know, that's their own fault. Mm. That's their own fault. Gentlemen, thank you very much. This is Navarra FM, who are Resonance 104.4 FM. London's number one radio station. See you same time, same place next week. Bye.